Today's reading will come from Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7, ending in chapter 4, verse 34. Okay. Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom they gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebel. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and, ever, and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus, uh, Jesus' mother and brother, mother and brothers are uh, arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and set in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked about the parables. 
He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may, ev- so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others like seed sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Good morning, everyone. May I add my welcome to that of Andres. It is so great to... See you all, um, especially special welcome to those who are visiting for the first time. Some of you I know, some of you I just got to know. Again, my name is Andis, and I am one of the, the teaching elders here. Now, the room is uh, a little bit more full than normally, which means the oxygen is going to run probably in the next 15 minutes. So let's keep a little, a, a little, uh, a little breathing space there. Now, you already probably got a sense that here in Grace Church, we are really serious about the Bible. Thank you, Taylor, very much for reading all this section. Just may I remind us that, that this time around, we have decided to cover the whole of Mark's gospel till Easter, which means we are going to be seeing bigger chunks. But uh, I, I, think, I think, I hope this is going to serve purpose uh, of, of us seeing... Uh, Jesus, from a sort of in a bird's eye view, making bigger steps through the Bible, will see the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus sort of more focused rather than, rather than us you know, stuck in a particular 
detail or a theme. So thanks, Andres, for praying for us. We'll need uh, energy. We'll need to stay awake, especially when the oxygen runs out. So may God help us all. Now, now this, this time, this Sunday, I am not going to kick us off with a... Um, uh, open mic question, but rather a rhetorical question. So ponder for a few seconds, how easy do you find speaking out uh, for Jesus in your workplace or university or just amongst your non-Christian friends? How easy do you find that? Now, perhaps you have tried multiple times to do that and you have faced pushback, and so your confidence in what you have to say about Jesus starts to shrink. Maybe on Monday you went to your work, or maybe you went to your, went to your lectures, or you met your friends, um, and around the table people were chatting about what they did over the weekend, and so you thought to contribute to that discussion, you said, you know, I was at the church on Sunday, and we were thinking about how amazing Jesus' kingdom is. There will be no sin, no sickness, no uncleanness, um, and no sin. In your dream fantasy world of religious nutters, someone shouts out, and, you know, others at the table slightly, you know, uh, um, go, go, go and laugh, and you face a sudden pushback and ridicule, and that is shocking to you. And so your confidence in speaking out for Jesus starts to shrink. Now, even worse, you start to question the whole Jesus' kingdom thing. It seemed such a plausible thing on Sunday amongst Christians. But now on Monday, amongst my work colleagues or university mates or friends, it doesn't seem such a plausible thing after all. I just don't see Jesus' kingdom, you say. Is it worth carrying on to share the gospel? Now, if you have ever felt like that, not necessarily this week, but if you've ever felt like that, I have some good news for you today. Evangelist Mark wants us to know that despite pushback, despite opposition to Jesus' kingdom, it is growing so we can have confidence in Jesus. That is the, 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 very, the big thing today. Now, if, if you have recently joined us, as, as Andres mentioned already, here's a brief catch-up to where we are in Mark's gospel. Mark, the author of this book, announced the arrival of Jesus, the long-promised king and his kingdom. And we saw that this kingdom is really, really amazing. There is no place for evil, sickness, uncleanness, or sin. And we were saying, right, who in their right mind would not want to be part of this kingdom? It turns out that there are such people. Sadly, the religious authorities do not want Jesus as their king. Even worse, they conspired how to kill Jesus. Well, I think it is fair to say that Jesus is having hard times convincing some people um, about who he is. 
And Jesus experiences pushback. So what will he do? Now, is he going to lay low for a little while? Is he going to keep his head under the parapet? Is he going to speak less about the arrival of this amazing kingdom? What is he going to do? And friends, in our today's passage, we see neither. Instead, we see how Jesus responds to his rejection. Firstly, he excludes from his kingdom those who don't want him as king. He is in charge, so we, have, we can have confidence in him. And that is chapter 3. And secondly, Jesus' kingdom is growing despite appearances, so we can have confidence in his kingdom, and, and that is chapter 4. Now, friends, I really, really want us to grasp this. Having confidence in the person and work of Jesus will impact our Christian walk in the longer run. We, will we go strong? Will we be actually useful instruments in the advance of his kingdom or not? That will depend on how confident we are about what we have. Now, how does Mark build our confidence in our today's section of Mark's gospel? Now, by showing, firstly, that Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. He excludes from his kingdom those who don't want him as king. From verses 7 to 12, we see actually Jesus goes about his business as usual. He's healing people. He's casting out evil spirits. He doesn't mind the opposition. Even more, Jesus has become so popular that people from all of the first century Palestine are just piling and coming to him. Look at verse 7. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Jesus is not laying low. He doesn't hold his head below the parapet just because the authorities want to kill him. He goes about his business as usual. But that doesn't mean Jesus ignores his opposition. Now, we already saw how Jesus goes on offensive against the scribes and Pharisees. Here is how Jesus responds to his rejection from verse 13. I know it's a big statement, but hang in there. Jesus replaces the old Israel with the new Israel. At a first glance, that seems a bit of an overstatement. It seems that Jesus is simply having, a, you know, a hilly outdoors mountain walk with his disciples, appreciating, you know, the scenery. But it only seems like that until we notice a few important details there. See if anything ring bells. Glance at verse 13. Where is Jesus? On the mountain. What does he do? Verse 14 and 16. He appoints his apostles, his messengers. How many of them are there? Well, he appoints 12. Does it ring any bells? What is Jesus actually doing here? Simply put, Jesus is being a king. 
Just as God in the Old Testament was king who called and appointed the leaders of the 12 tribes of the people of Israel on the Mount Sinai, so Jesus now is king who calls and appoints another 12 leaders on the mountain. Now the scribes and Pharisees are representing the old Israel. As the leaders of the old Israel, they have said they want nothing to do with Jesus. They conspired how to kill him. We will not have you as a king. So now Jesus says to them, okay, okay, then I will not have you in my kingdom. I will pick another 12 whom I'm going to who I'm going to continue with, that's what Jesus does. But just think, does it not build our confidence in Jesus? In the face of opposition, rejection, in the face of the conspiracy to kill him, Jesus advances his kingdom. He calls the whole new set of people, new Israel. Jesus appoints the 12 Apostles who will speak out for Jesus. How amazing is that? How confidence building it is. I used to know a man who converted to Christianity from uh, Islam. Uh, He had to flee his country because his dad and brothers were given a permission to kill him. But he didn't just lay low by going to some, you know, some obscure, obscure corner of the world. He went to London and joined one of the churches there in reaching out to other Muslim people with the gospel. Now, here is someone who clearly has confidence in Jesus as king. Despite opposition, despite even the death threats from his own people, from his own family, he confidently uh, places himself as an instrument in Jesus' hands for the advance of his kingdom. Jesus is in charge. Now, what about us? What about us? A good number of years ago, I complained to one pastor about some opposition I faced in my ministry. Now, he listened to me for a while, carefully, and I expected him to say how sorry he felt, you know, about the things that I was going through. Instead, he said to me, well, at least no one is burning down your house. In other words, my friend, I know pastors whose houses are actually burned down for preaching of the gospel, but they persevere in speaking out for Jesus. Do you think maybe you should carry on too? Without complaining. Uh, what, what, about, what about you? Well, that was about me. What about you? How do you respond to opposition to your faith? I suppose none of us are are really facing death threats here in Latvia for our faith. Not yet, at least. But what about these minor oppositions of our faith? Do you lay low? Are you tempted to keep your head slightly, you know, under parapet? 
Do you start to lose confidence in Jesus being actually in charge? Well, you shouldn't, because he really is in charge. Friends, stick around Jesus and stick around his people for building this confidence. You see, Jesus not only replaced the old Israel with the new, but he also redefines who his family is. And that we see from verse 20 onwards. Jesus redefines who his family is. And we see that Jesus' family is those who are around him and listen to his words. Well, what we have from verse 20 are the scribes from the very headquarters, the Jerusalem, Jerusalem. They have obviously heard about Jesus' demon-driving-out ministry, but they have come up with a totally different verdict. Instead of bowing knee and calling Jesus the Prince of Peace, they call him the Prince of Demons. Glance at verse 22. They say he's possessed by Beelzebul and by the Prince of Demons. He casts out the demons. Now, Jesus doesn't lose heart, but he calls them to himself. I, I think that's quite an authoritative move, right? Come to me. And Jesus exposes their faulty logic with the help of this parable in 23. Class at verse 23, Jesus says, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, firstly, Jesus says, your verdict about me makes no sense. Now, why would Satan go against himself? He would then self-consciously bring his reign to ruin. Why would he do that? No one does that. Now, even Putin doesn't declare war on Putin. That would be the end of it, wouldn't it? Well, maybe he should. And secondly, Jesus says, the fact that the demon is actually gone from this man proves that I am stronger than even the strongest man. What does it make me if I can bind Satan and drive out his servants? It makes me king, doesn't it? Now, Jesus finishes by giving a serious warning to these hotshots from Jerusalem. See verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now this is often the place where Christians with very sensitive consciences, they get really hung up. How do I know if I've ever, you know, blasphemed the Holy Spirit? How do I know that? 
you know, I, I think yesterday I watched these terrible news and, and, and my tongue slipped and I said, OMG, you know, how do I know that I haven't by that blasphemed the, the Holy Spirit? My friend, the fact that you are, you, you are trembling and asking this question, maybe in your mind, that puts you in the safe. You're not guilty. It has nothing to do with the slip of the tongue. The scribes had clear evidence that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. We saw that in chapter 2. In order that, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, rise up, take your mattress, and go. The only person who can forgive sins is the one who can baptize with the Spirit. John said, the one who comes after me will baptize with the Spirit. But these guys, they self-consciously, resolutely hardened their hearts up to the point where they called the Spirit's work, saving work, the Satan's work. Now, to attribute Jesus' saving work to Satan, that is blaspheming against the Spirit. It is the state of a such hardness of heart that it can it can only lead to the eternal damnation. Nothing to do with the slip of the tongue. Um, okay, but what does this have to do with Jesus' family? We've been only looking at these, you know, uh, baddies from Jerusalem. What does it have to do with Jesus' family? Did you notice how Mark splits the account about Jesus' family? and places the account about blaspheming scribes in the middle. Did you notice that? Well, that is one of Mark's favorite writing techniques. It's called the sandwich. Um, the, the bonds on the outside, the, the family, are explained by the meat in the middle, namely scribes, and hence the sandwich. And what we discover here is actually unsettling. Now, glance again at verses 20, 21. Jesus' family says, 21, is he, he is out of his mind. And now the middle bit with the scribes, they say Jesus has Beelzebul. And Jesus speaks to them as outsiders. He speaks to them in parables. And now see verse 31. Jesus' family stands outside. It's unsettling. Let's read and see that for ourselves. 21, 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called. And a crowd was sitting, where? Around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who said, Around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines who his family is. It's not necessarily a biological family. It is a spiritual family. Those who are around him and those who listen to his words. Well, I think it's worth addressing probably the elephant in the room at this stage. 
Are you saying that Jesus is really identifying the blaspheming scribes and Pharisees with his own brothers, and especially mother, Mother Mary? Are you saying that, that Jesus identifies? Well, he seems to be. Now, are you saying that Jesus thinks his family is in danger of rejecting Jesus? Well, he seems to be. Now, are you saying really that Jesus thinks his family is guilty of the eternal sin against the Holy Spirit? I don't think that this is what Jesus is saying here. I think Mark's main point in splitting the family and placing the scribes in the middle is to make one, one, underline one big truth, that rejecting Jesus politely is still rejecting Jesus. And we saw how Jesus responds to his rejection, right? You don't want me as your king? Okay, you will not be in my kingdom. In, res in response uh, to rejection, Jesus is going forward with the new people. He replaces the old Israel with the new Israel. And Jesus even chooses his family, and Jesus' own family is in danger of rejecting Jesus. To reject Jesus politely is still rejecting Jesus. I think of my ballroom dancing teachers many, many, many years ago, back in the days. Now, I had already become Christian, and one day I ran into her in a coffee shop. Well, not literally, but you know what I mean. I ran into her. And so she asked, you know, how I was doing. She was very happy to see me. And by that time, I was barely a year a Christian. So I was, you know, absolutely on fire about Jesus. Couldn't shut up talking about Jesus. And I went on into this coffee shop. And so she listened to me. And then she said, it is good that you have found God, but don't get carried away by this whole thing, meaning going every Sunday to church or going to the weekly Bible studies every week. Don't, don't get carried away by this. And what she was actually doing was rejecting Jesus politely. She kind of believed God herself. She would say she's religious, but what she was doing, she was rejecting Jesus politely. And Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you inwardly approve to be good, what you inwardly approve to be profitable, rejecting me politely is still rejecting me. Now, this section is incredibly, incredibly encouraging, my friends. It builds our confidence that Jesus is the real thing. He is indeed the king. He determines who's in and out so we can confidently speak out for Jesus and his amazing kingdom because these things are simply true and these things work. But I suppose we know how God's word can be a double-edged sword, don't we? How it can cut straight and challenge us too. I think it's worth sometimes, sometimes asking, now, Father, is there any, any way in which I am politely rejecting you in my life? 
It's, it's, it's a really healthy checkup, you know? Maybe in your early years as Christian, you were so keen to fellowship with others around the Word on Sundays and in the Bible study groups, etc., etc. But now it, you know, it has moved some, some, somewhat in the background. Other things like hanging out with mates or career or travel the world have become suddenly more important, more exciting. You know, you just don't want to be consumed completely by this church thing. And in effect, you're really saying you don't want to be consumed by Jesus. But why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you be consumed by Jesus? Yes, his family, the church, I mean, they may not be perfect. In fact, it never is perfect. But what a king he is. Think about that. He has forgiven your sins. He has baptized you in his spirit. He has grafted you in his family. He is your bridegroom and wants you to be carried away by him daily because he simply loves you. Why wouldn't you be consumed by Jesus totally? So my friends, alongside the encouragement to stick around Jesus, to stick around his family, there is a warning not to reject Jesus politely. May we hear that? Because that will still mean, in the longer run, rejecting Jesus. Now, and Jesus' response to those who reject him is harsh. I think we discover that more explicitly in chapter 4, actually. But while chapter 4 underlines Jesus' response to his rejection, I think it also continues to be an encouragement to keep trusting his kingdom work. Now, the, the second thing, his kingdom is growing despite appearances, so we may have confidence in it. But let's look at first at why Jesus is talking in parables. Why is he speaking in parables? Now, a, a little quick, you know, a little quick sort of, open mic because we're tempted to fall asleep because of the shortage of everything. Um, what is the popular answer to why Jesus speaks in parables? Anyone? anyone? What is the popular answer? It's a good moral story. Yeah, why not? Yeah, thanks, Robert. Anyone else? Why? What is, what's the popular answer why Jesus speaks in parables? Thanks, Vera. Yes, to make, make people just, you know, to come forward and make people easier to understand. Now, we, we have to ask this question, why? Is he captured by the beauty of the countryside? And, and so he uses simple and familiar picture to help people grasp what he is saying. Now, I have to say, Jesus definitely approves of the beauty of this creation, right? Because he did it. He created it. Why, why he wouldn't appreciate it, but that is not why he speaks in parables. Jesus speaks in parables so that those who are on the outside would not see, would not understand, would not be forgiven. Can this actually be true? How come Jesus, meek and mild, could do something like that? Now turn with me verses 10 in, in chapter 4. 
So Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest, or NIV, otherwise, they should return and be forgiven. What we need to get is that Jesus here is not being arbitrary. Jesus here is not being in bad mood today. No, the readers of Mark's gospel should stop here and ask, have we not heard a similar language anywhere else? And indeed we have. Indeed, we're supposed to remember prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 and how God commissioned him to preach to the tribe of Judah. And what did he have to preach? Now, if you have quick fingers, you can find Isaiah 6 and verse 8. I'm going to read from verses 8 to 10 of Isaiah 6. And here we have it. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So, what does Isaiah has to preach? He has to preach the judgment to the rebellious people. And this is what Jesus does here. He preaches judgment to those who oppose him, and those who reject him. But one might say, is it fair? Is it fair? Since when people receiving what they want is unfair, now both the people of God in Isaiah and the scribes and the Pharisees here, they reject, they've rejected the word of God, about the work of God, his salvation. They didn't want God so they are not getting God, since when getting what you want is unfair. Jesus is judging them even now by speaking to them in parables. Did you notice that in chapter 3, 23, that actually Jesus spoke to the scribes in a parable about how come he casts out demons? Now, should we then be speaking in parables to people who reject Jesus? Well, I guess this question assumes that we are Jesus, God himself, who have the right to execute judgment, right? So no, my friends, we, we, we don't have to. We shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. Let us proclaim the gospel clearly, plainly, confidently. Let us proclaim the gospel and say, those who are sick need a doctor, right? Right? What do you do when you are sick? You go to the doctor. Jesus has come to call sinners. Are you a sinner? If yes, come, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let's preach the gospel clearly and 
and faithfully and plainly. Now, although the purpose of Jesus speaking in parables is judgment on the scribes and Pharisees, the parables themselves, they contain a very, very encouraging message, namely the secret of the kingdom of God. God's again in verse 10, and we, um, and when he was alone, those, al- those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. So what is this secret of the kingdom of God? Now, according to Jesus, it is the hidden nature of its growth. I'm going to quickly guide you through, and, and we are towards our, our closing here. Chapter 4, verse 26, the kingdom of God is as if a man. Verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? So these are two big questions. And then we see it is compared to the seed, right, that is scattered or sown. And then this seed grows. And actually it grows without any knowledge of those who have sown it. They just do their work and they just go to sleep or do something else. And it grows. Of course, only the disciples receive the explanation of it. Jesus' kingdom, verse 15, grows through his word. Disciples receive the secret of the kingdom of God, its hidden nature. It grows somewhere in the background. Now, I confess I was really tempted to go with the main application for this. For us, you know, sow the word. Be a sower of the word. Be like Isaiah. Whom shall I send? Send me. Let's sow the word. But then I realize it is not actually what Jesus stresses most here. Not really. Did you spot what Jesus really stresses in chapter 4? I think that we should keep listening. That we should keep continuing listening. I think that is what that, that is what I tell to my oldest, who's in, in grade three. I say, hey, Timmy, if you do not hear or if you do not understand your subject or your lesson or what your homework is, ask the teacher. Ask her. Be bugging until you get it. Now, he looks at me quite suspiciously. Yeah. Listen well, listen well, and then you'll get it. Ask. I think that is what Jesus really uh, wants for us. Let's see that. Chapter 4, verse 3. Did you see that? Chapter verse 3. Listen. Listen. Then verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 23. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And further, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has 
will be taken away. Pay attention to how you listen, Jesus says. So how, how are we hearing? How are we listening? Do we listen well to Jesus? I do realize I'm almost approaching my 40th minute. I know it's challenging. But this is not what I mean. Are we receiving his word frequently? On our own, together with anyone else. Are we receiving it prayerfully? And with soft hearts, asking the spirit to reveal the the treasures from it and make them profitable to us? Are we gladly obeying to what the word of God says, to what it prompts us in our lives? My friends, why? Again, why is it so important? Because it is through the word that Jesus increasingly rules in our lives. It's through the word that he increasingly takes charge of our lives, our marriages, our relationships in the workplace, in university, with our non-Christian friends. So my friends, let us keep listening well and pray now for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your life-giving word, even when it's stretching, even when it's challenging, we pray, we praise you that your King Jesus is in charge, that he didn't lay low, that he didn't put his head under parapet, that he didn't uh, just kept quiet for a while, but he kept proclaiming your amazing kingdom. And Father, thank you that you are a righteous and just God. Those who do not want you as king, they will indeed not be in your kingdom. So Father, please make us really, really conscious of that. That we would never be in a place that we start to reject Jesus politely or swerve away from his gospel and from the fellowship. But rather... Rather, Father, may we be encouraged that if we stick around Jesus and his people, and if we keep listening to what Jesus has to say to us, we can confidently reassure ourselves that we are part of his spiritual family. We are part of his kingdom that grows even when outwardly we do not see it. Father, we praise you for these amazing truths, and may that be a great encouragement for us to persevere in the coming week, to speak out for Jesus and to have confidence in his his authority to bring things about. In his name we pray. Amen.